welcome to the Burden Steep Podcast. Though I didn't do 20 or 30 years locked up, and I never spent time in the hole or had to make a shiv, after six years in the Texas penal system, I've still seen some stuff. I've lived through many lockdown and endured authoritarian regimes, seen riots, learned how to navigate deeply entrenched racial issues, and as the world around us snowballs further into insanity, I can't help but think how like prison this all is. Yet it wasn't all doom and gloom, I made some incredible friendships along the way, learned things about myself I don't know if I ever would have uncovered, and I learned that prison Mike was right. They do serve gruel and there are dementors, though they aren't the worst part of it. Join me as I share stories from the inside and dive into how my time locked up has changed, altered, and shaped my views now that I am on the outside. What up, free world? This is Prison Steve and the Prison Steve Podcast. And I'm coming to you live from the back of my rig. I'm driving out here in East Texas for harvest season. Putting that CDL to use uh, again, finally. And uh, just wanted to do a real quick intro uh, just to be able to kind of give you a recap last time. Uh, so this is the third episode. Uh, the first two episodes were was a walkthrough of what led up to my incarceration. I did that with my younger brother, Andrew, and one of my really good friends, Andrew Dieger. And we were able to just get in there and unpack kind of uh, what happened and, and unravel the, the mess that led up to that. And so what my brother had to bring was very insightful because uh, he brought perspective from the family of what it was like for them. And it also shows like what it's like for somebody when they commit a crime, it's not done in a vacuum. You're affecting everybody else around you. And uh, so he was able to kind of really bring that insight. And then my, my buddy, Andrew Dieger, just brought some real poignant questions and helped keep me on point and then also just kind of like uh, flesh some things out. So I really appreciate not having to do, walk through that alone and being able to do that with two people that I really trust. And I'm able to do this third part with one of the guys that I've trusted the most in my life. His name is Chris Nickel. He's a best friend. He's a pastor. He's my pastor. I've known him since 2004. Um, I got back from Uganda on a missions trip. He had just got back from Azerbaijan, and we were both starting up at this uh, church within a church called Eastgate. It was like a 20, 30-somethings church, kind of hip, kind of cool. But everybody there was just really excited about what was going on in life, and uh, we just jumped full, uh, both feet in, and it was, uh, for us, amazing because we, we were able to build a community. We served in that for two years. Um, I wouldn't say we—I know I wouldn't consider myself a pastor, but I was a leader in that group. And then we got that offer to go to Albania. And even though the original intention was for both of us to be there for a year, we were there together for six months. I had to come back because I ran out of money, and he was able to go back. But that time right there solidified a bond that would go through everything that I would put— everybody else through and uh my my random travels um then then you know obviously the uh the robbery and then being on the run waiting prison sentence and then all the way up to sentencing and so chris was actually there in the courtroom with me so he brings a really unique uh, perspective from his point so this story is basically going to be from uh the day one uh what happened uh from that day one in court so my first day in prison to the time that I got out and what I've been doing since and just a walk through with that. So we're doing that with him and uh, real excited to be bringing that with you guys. For everybody that commented, liked, subscribed and did everything and, and just all the kind words you guys had to say, 
Man, it's so appreciated. Really, uh, it's you know, criticism, uh, uh, interest, everything. It's 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 really good for me to get that feedback and kind of. I've never, like I said, never un- uh, told this whole story in full. And um, you know, when you're when you've done something and and really messed up, you're always expecting that ball to drop of just being like you're a real f up and you just suck and blah blah blah. And, and just, you know, the, you know, you're, you're a horrific person. And, you know, for somebody like, like us coming out of prison, you know, we may push back on that, but a lot of us would just be like, yeah, I am. It's one of the things you just kind of come to accept, you know, it's just like, Hey, you know, like I bottomed out. I can, I can admit, you know, I'm, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing the best of things to put me in the situation that I did. And I, I remember, I admit that I hurt a lot of people. So I'm always expecting that ball to drop. And when you get a lot of the opposite, uh, it's it's just it's really mind blowing and overwhelming and always very encouraging. So thank you guys for that. Thank you guys for just participating in this uh, journey and this walkthrough. And there is going to be a YouTube video. It's going to be a little bit delayed in putting out, but it'll uh, it'll be a video of me and Chris uh, doing this podcast together. So without further delay, let's jump into this. It's the money. Greetings, free world. That's what I say. It's like, yeah, yeah. That's what we call people uh, in prison that were not in prison. We call them free world. So just want to say welcome if you're coming in through YouTube uh, for episode two, if you're coming in through the podcast, episode three. And this is going to be uh, a episode to follow up on the previous ones, just telling the story of uh, the first ones were telling the story of how I went from uh, basically missionary to prison and being sentenced. And then today what we're going to be covering with my buddy Chris Nickel is we're going to be covering uh, day one of what happened on that day uh, that I was locked up all the way through my uh, six-year duration and then what has happened since I got out and uh, some of the plans and and things that I have on the agenda, stuff that I learned along the way. And Chris is just going to be able to ask questions and just be able to uh, rift on whatever comes up. Keep me on, keep me in line just when I start uh, maybe going off on a tangent or something like that. So anyway, without further ado, let me introduce my best friend, good buddy, Chris Nickel, uh, who I've known for since Gosh. 2004. So yes. you're, you're well, good with math. What is that? 17 years? Yeah. Okay. So he's good with math. Yeah. Wow. 17 years. Don't feel old now. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Hey, it's good to be here with everybody. Happy to, uh, jump in on the, uh, the podcast and the, the YouTube channel today. And uh, yeah, I remember this is what, 10 years ago now, uh, almost. Jeez, yeah. Uh, December 2011, you know, uh, Steve had been back, as you probably learned in the last episode, he had been back in country, but was waiting for, you know, court date, basically. And so we had been hanging out for a little while and um, at least probably, what, a couple years or something like that. And then, yeah, he invited me to come to the sentencing just if like, or, you know, as far as that trial, because um, he could have people come and make statements and things like that. So I remember that day like it was, you know, yesterday, just coming down, making a statement, um, standing before the judge and, um, yeah. you know, just kind of throwing out like, well, here's here's who I know Steve to be. I know he's made this, you know, he's made this mistake, uh, but he's... He's here today, you know, saying he is guilty, but, uh, you know, willing to make restitution for, for the crime he committed, uh, and 
hopefully to get some kind of probation, things like that. But we know didn't quite uh, didn't quite turn out like that, <laughs> as far as what the judge came down with. But yeah, so let's go ahead. Uh, we're going to jump into that day. We'll just go ahead and jump into it now, just so you guys know. We're filming at the uh, Impact Guild, which is uh, so the church that I go to is called Park Community Church. Community church. Yeah, yeah, you got it right. <laughs> I want to go community Bible, and I'm like, part no. Okay. Just throw community in there, throw church in there, and you probably yeah. get the name right. They specialize yeah. in both anyway. That's right. So uh, I I've been going to uh, the park uh, all the way back, even when I was even even when I was on bond, I was going to the park, even though I was a zombie, I was still just kind of attending, and and so when I got out, it was like it was just natural for me that this was going to be my church. So. Uh, Chris Nichols, one of the pastors yep. at the uh, co-pastors at the uh, park. And um, so not only just being a, a longtime best friend of mine, but he's also uh, a pastor and a mentor of mine as well. So uh, anyway, the park has actually, do you want to explain Impact Guild? Yeah. So the place where we're at today, it's in Midtown here in San Antonio. Um, it's uh, on West Summit Avenue and it's actually this old, it's been a number of different things. It's this old building, got a big lighthouse out front. Um, but about four or five years ago now, at least maybe six, uh, this building was given to us by some people who attend our church and they, ha- they said, look, we're, we're not, we don't know what to do with it. We'd like to give it to the church. Maybe you guys can do something with it. So we uh, based on the size and kind of what it's, you know, what it's kind of makeup is, we decided to turn it into a co-working space so that, uh, this gift that the church was given, uh, we want to turn it around and make it basically like useful for the city. Um, unlike a lot of church buildings, not a knock on church buildings, but a lot of them sit empty, uh, you know, Monday through Saturday and we didn't necessarily want to do that. So it's a co-working community, pretty vibrant, led by, uh, Sarah Woolsey and her team, good friends of ours, also people that are around the park. And uh, yeah, it's been in operation for about four years, I think. C- took a year or two to renovate it, uh, completely gutted it and renovated it. But yeah, you can be a, a, a co-working member here at the Impact Guild if you want to be. You can go check out, uh, just look it up online. You can check it out. Yeah, if I, if I was going to spend uh, more time in San Antonio, and we'll get into this later on in the what are you doing now type of thing, then I definitely would use this as a co-working space and pay uh, to be a member here. Definitely well worth it. Beautiful craftsmanship and, yeah. and just design and everything. So they're kind enough to let us uh, be able to film here. And so uh, you can see that we don't have our signature liqueur, and that's because we're filming at... <laughs> it's 3 uh, o'clock in the afternoon, too. Yeah. But it's never... There's never... A, it's You can yeah. always have some whiskey, but yeah. it just felt... You, you still got to go home to a family. And, uh, that is true. And yes. I still got to go try to be doing protective stuff. So, uh, I've got my black rifle, you got your water and I think we're just ready to roll. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, let's go ahead and launch into day one. Um, what, uh, I shared with them like what was going on that day and like what, like what it was for me being there going through the sentencing process and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, I didn't get too much into detail what it was like in the courtroom. Um, but like just real quick, like what was it that you, where were you in the whole process and, and yeah. all that stuff? Yeah. I, I, you know, distinctly remember that day thinking, um, you know, it's, from what we had talked about, I think what you had mentioned was like, ah, oh, man, I think I'll get, you know, 10 years probation. They'll you know, probably just kind of keep me on a tight leash. You know, it's my first offense, you know, whatnot. So 
I kind of came thinking, uh, you know, this is formality. He needs to go before the judge. This needs to happen. <laughs> you know, like this needs to happen. <laughs> but, but nothing, you know, nothing like hugely drastic was going to happen. I just, I didn't think that, that was going to take place. Yeah. So, but it felt very, of course, formal. I mean, I remember walking into the courtroom, being invited to come in and go ahead and have a seat, you know, uh, you know, a judge up there in like the black robe, the whole deal, a couple officers, you know, so I was like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, this isn't Judge Judy, uh, you know, necessarily, <laughs> but this is, this is like, this is for real. Like, okay. Like this is, there's true like weight to this moment. Um, so, and I'd kind of rehearsed what I knew I wanted to say and what I wanted to, to mention before the judge, but yeah, I just kind of, um, you know, kind of thought, this is a formality, like, you know, and, and then Steve's going to go back out. He's going to have some kind of ankle bracelet on for, you know, five years, can't leave the state, you know, just some kind of stipulations being laid out versus, uh, versus the verdict that you ended up getting. But so, yeah. yeah. So I, uh, my lawyer wanted me to have a few character with, uh, witnesses and Chris was one of the ones that I, uh, recommended. So Chris got up there and spoke on my behalf. And, um, and, and then a few others that I had, I think my dad and, um, maybe Johnny. I think so. Yeah. 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 So, um, now after that happened and they go ahead, you know what you're expecting. And I shared that my, my brother Andrew shared, yeah, that's what he was expecting as well. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty much everybody in that room was expecting that. I think at that point, something had switched in that week going into it where I had even gone up to Ed, my lawyer, and said, hey, if I end up going to, to, to prison, I understand, I accept it, I'm not trying, I won't try to fight it, mm -hmm. or nothing like that, um, but, you know, let's shoot for probation, but at the same time, you know, if I have to go to prison, then I want to try to get a light, lighter sentencing, you know? Right. Um, and so that, I remember shocked Ed when he heard that. He was like, okay. Hmm. Uh, and so I might have, I might have escorted myself into prison. He might've been like, oh, now I got some negotiating room. Yeah. Cause you know, you have, as a lawyer, you've got several different cases going. Hmm. And so what you might be doing sometimes, and what I've seen is that they'll offer one and say, hey, I'll get, I can get my guy to agree to this. If you give me this for this other guy. And so I might have actually just green-lighted him some negotiating power with some of his other cases. Because mm. um, I had put a decent amount of money into this, mm -hmm. and he did have some weight, uh, some outcome in this because it was enough high-profile, I guess, of a case that he would be able to kind of use that to kind of sell himself to other clients, mm -hmm. offenders, possible offenders, alleged. Mm-hmm. And, um, so anyway, just going into it, but I had a feeling going into it that I was going to go to prison, hmm. but I was in, my depression was, was back in full force to where I didn't want to face that or think about it. I'm hmm. like, I'm just going to show up. If I go to prison, I go to prison. Mm -hmm. The only thing I think I did is I was like, Hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make sure I put like a hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars in my wallet. So if I go, I knew that there was, I, I knew this from just that little time that I had done mm -hmm. um, in the extradition process that if you had any cash on you, it could go into your commissary. Mm. So I was like, well, I'll do that. But outside of that, I didn't do any research. I didn't know what mm. to expect if, if the verdict went the other way. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and speaking of that, that, that moment, I think right before the verdict was read, it might've been right after, I can't remember, but 
so if you want to talk about like most distinct memory of that courtroom experience from my perspective, I remember the judge, you know, looking at you, I think after you had made your statement, which, you know, I think it was a pretty emotional plea, you know, like truly remorseful, like clearly, you know, like I've screwed up, you know, whatnot. And the judge was like, after hearing from your witnesses, you know, a couple other folks as well, judge was like, Steve, I don't know why you're here, man. You know, he, I, I remember the judge saying, the crime you committed does not fit the person that's standing here and does not fit what everybody is describing as true. Yeah. And, and the judge was like, I believe him. I believe him, you know? And then I remember him saying something to the effect of, but I've got to uphold the law. Hmm. And I've got to look at you and I have to look at the law. And if I have to choose one as a judge, I, I got to choose the law. And it was kind of like the judge was like disappointed in a way of like, I got to do this, yeah. you know? Otherwise, the integrity of the system is is a little bit off, you know? So, so anyway, that's that, that was my big memory of that day. But. Well, that that's so interesting for me because I don't remember any of that. Mm. Like, I don't remember anything he said. All yeah. I remember is him saying... Uh, 10 years. I sentenced yeah. you to 10 years of TDCJ, <laughs> Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I was like, and remanded and things like that. Uh, and I was like, that's, I, I really, that's all I remember. So it's very interesting you remember him saying that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that at all. It's interesting. interesting to get your perspective from being in the audience and listening yeah. in. Um, so something I shared with the guys, that, and this is maybe like the the what do you call it it's the ball that dropped mm-hmm. was sharing with them that when i was in my when i was on bond for that two and a half years they brought forth the case and they said what can you tell us about the case and i said okay so i can tell you and i was able to tell them about maybe 30 percent of what i can do tell now mm. i just couldn't remember i just blocked that out mm. there were so many things that I blocked out. I actually had a look at a, uh, a discovery packet. I couldn't remember the name of it last time. It's called discovery packet. Hmm. I had to look at a discovery packet and I had to try to, as I'm going through, it's helping put some things together, mm-hmm. but I really had very little recollection about a lot of it. Hmm. Um, and so he actually had me go see a psychiatrist cause he's like, I need to see if like what, hmm. what's going on here. Like, hmm is this, and I was like, it's not a psychological case, you know, it's, uh, and, and I didn't know it was depression either. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. It took me being locked up for me to understand what depression was and Mm. and to start understanding that. Um, I was like, look, all I know is I just did it and I can't tell you too many more details. Mm. So later on when he brought me, um, when we got a phone call saying, Hey, we got some detectives at the door looking for you on another case. Mm. I was like, oh my God, they're pinning all the stuff on me. <laughs> this is the system. This is how it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> this, right. yeah. And, um, and so I got, I turned myself in, I paid out bond again. Hmm. Um, and then I went before Ed and sat at his office and Ed's like, all right, this is what it is for Starbucks. And I said, and you know about, the, you, you remember that? I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and I don't know if I remember, like we had a conversation about it, but it was like, I think, I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just like, and that's what I was sitting there and Ed's like, come on, man, I'm your lawyer, confidentiality, yada, yada, yada. Right. And I'm like, look, Ed, I barely remember the palladium. I don't know what this is. I don't remember being there. So I can't fess up to something that I don't know what I, was there. Right. Was going on. 
um, I just had blocked a lot of this stuff out. Hmm. And um, so he had me read the discovery packet and parts of it seemed like, it's almost like I could imagine what was happening, but I was like, is it just cause I'm reading it or cause it's, it's hmm. is, and, and I'm starting to kind of picture that I could have done that I could right. be, right. but, and to this, I, I don't know, you know, what that was and why I blocked it out so hard. Hmm. Um, so when I stood before the judge, part of this whole thing was the DA wanted me on two charges. That's why they wanted, hmm. uh, uh, 18 years and, and, and starting. And, um, I, my brother reminded me that Ed was able to negotiate 15 as a max to start. Hmm. Um, and that they would take the Starbucks thing into consideration. Hmm. And so when I was up there, I, I think what weighed on it moving from probation to that was that he had to take that into account. I got, yeah. Right. 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 And, um, so yeah. And, but now looking back, I'm like, I can tell you, yes, I did that. Hmm. I, I remember now hmm. doing that. Hmm. It took a quite a bit of time as I was going through my time in prison. In fact, I actually forgot about it hmm. for a large portion, maybe until I got to my fourth or fifth year of being locked up. Then it all rolled back in. It was my fifth year. Yeah, it was hmm. my. I was I was doing my fifth year, um, and I was I was finishing up. I was doing a class that helps with parole when you go before them. Hmm. And it talks about like understanding crimes from the victim's perspective. It's mm-hmm. called Bridges to Life. Mm. And as we're going through it, they say, write a letter to your victims. And I was like, okay. And so I'm writing it out. And in that process, I remember there wasn't just, and they say, they explain what a victim was. It's not just, um, it's not just the people that were involved in the crime. It's also your family. It's also your friends. Mm. It's also their family. It's also their friends. Yeah. Like the the impact of your actions go far beyond just that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, and then I remembered, and I was like, oh man, I think I did that. And I had a, I, I don't know what happened to that letter. I think I just turned it in and just mm. left it with him. But um, yeah, it was, it was just, you know, like, hey, you know, this... There were other people involved in other things when I was in this blacked out area wow, yeah. and other robberies. And then when I started re-putting everything back together, I started understanding like why my depression kind of kicked in the way it did and why I did. So when I, I was explaining to Andrew and Andrew that when I did Palladium, I had a plan that was pretty much foolproof. Nobody would have had any idea that I was ever there. Mm. But at the last minute, I made a change and was like, I want it to be public, but not so public that they know who I am automatically. I Mm. want them to have to work for it. Mm -hmm. So it gives me time to leave. Mm. Um, And so, you know, hence why I wore the mask and why I like did the little things I did, but I knew they would know eventually who I was. Mm -hmm. Um, But afterwards, when I was overseas and Ben met with me, and he's all, why did you do it that way? You said you were going to do it to where nobody knew who you were, Mm. like Starbucks. Cause I told him about it mm. and, and I was like, um, or he said like the other robbery or something like that. And I was like, I don't know, man. I just like, I just, mm. I just, something changed. I something was just, switched. I was like, I didn't want to explain to him that I wanted 
people to know how broken I was. Mm. And because I had done one robbery mm-hmm. and nobody knew who I, that it was me and, and da da da. And I was like, I could just do this again and not get caught. I could do it again somewhere else and not get mm. caught. Mm-hmm. I could get better at this. Mm. And then I was like, but that's, I realized that's not the point of why I'm doing what I'm doing. It has nothing to do with the money. It has nothing to do with no adrenaline rush, nothing like that. Mm. It's, I'm broken and I want people to know how broken I am, mm-hmm. but yeah. I didn't know how to express that. And that was the way that you were going to try to get that message out as far yeah. as like get attention or get, get people to, to look in your way and it and, was going to be through that way. Yeah. And the reason for that is not because I wanted the attention. I wanted them to be so horrified by me mm. that they said, Hey, don't come back. You're done. I wanted them to cut me out of their lives Hmm. so that it forced me to move on because I, at that point I was like, the only reason I keep coming back here is because my friends and family, I've got too, they've got too much of a draw or Hmm. home has too much of a draw, even though I don't really like this place a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I need something to cut ties. So I just will cut it and move on. And they're better off without me. And, and then I explained to the guys, you know, about the, the suicide attempt and, and and the ideas going in my head and how, I just was like, I'm so damaged, I'm afraid of what I could do to, hmm. you know, if yeah. I just keep going on, it doesn't get checked. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to, do you want to talk about like, I'm, I'm curious cause I came, I think myself and one other person, maybe it was Scott, I think came and visited you hmm. kind of, you know, move the timeline a little bit forward just in the conversation. Like, um, so you've been sentenced, you've got all that going through your mind as far as like what you remembered, what you didn't. Um, but now you're sitting in Bear County yeah. and like, I remember coming to visit you like maybe the next day or two days later. Mm-hmm. And the one word I would describe like you that I saw from behind that glass was exhausted. Like you looked exhausted. I know, I know you've described it other times. Like you also felt really at peace, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering you know, the mix of all of that, okay. of like, you know, man, my heart was at rest, but man, just the system itself, couldn't sleep, didn't know what was going to happen, you know, I'm getting transferred, like, you know, so like, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about um, the mix of your mindset, those first like 48 hours, mm-hmm. when you're when you're at Bear County, you haven't been moved off yet, but you're like waiting to be put on a chain, you know, to go to your, whatever, you know, your first stop, but... Tell me about the first 48, like being in Bear County. Okay. So soon as they sentenced me, I put, they put the handcuffs on. I'm escorted by two deputies out and I go into this little elevator. We go down and they put us in this little holding room with other people that have been sentenced as well. Hmm. Some of them just got like, you know, a week or something like that. And some of them have been given life, you know, we're all in the same room together, hmm. but everybody's just chatting away, just like da 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 da. And hmm. I'm just like, what the <laughs> heck? Like. Is this all the barber guys, shop or is yeah, this like all these guys are like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's like another rodeo for them. Hmm. And I remember just being there like, I got to do five years minimum, just thinking that mm-hmm. and just letting that sink in. But at the same time, I was, uh, I, I, I was still just numb. I was kind of dead. So I wasn't really able to process. Hmm. You go through all the, the holding tank stuff and whatnot. That could be anywhere from 48 hours just doing that process. But I guess it was a Monday or Tuesday. They process quick. Mm-hmm. So after the time of sentencing, about 12 hours later, I was I was brought into my cell. It was a, it was close to night, or it was night. My cellie that was 
uh, I was assigned in the same cell with was uh, SSI. So he was out working that night. So I had the whole place to myself mm-hmm. and I remember I went in and I was like, I looked at my, the stuff they give you, your clothes, extra clothes, your blanket, your toiletries, your bare necessities type that they give you initially. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, all right. So I went over and I had top bunk. So I started making up the bunk. I'm just looking for something to do. And then after I've done everything and put everything away, I'm like, okay, let's, let's process this. Mm-hmm. And that's when I just kind of sat down. I was just like, what am I feeling? What's mm-hmm. going on right now? Mm-hmm. And then two emotions jump out at me. And one you were dead accurate in, in the sense that it was exhaustion and relief. That was, that, that was the, mm. the, because for the last, and I, I shared with, with everybody in the last uh, episodes that I, for two and a half years, every single day was a fight not to run. Mm. And I had the money, I had the resources, and I could have ran. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to run to preserve my own self because I worship freedom more than anything else. It was my greatest yeah. love. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't imagine putting my family and you guys through that mm. again. Mm. And that's what kind of kept me grounded. Yeah. But it was still a fight every single day. Mm-hmm. And then as I was sitting there, I was like, it's done. Mm. I can't run. I can't escape. And it was just like the lack of options was almost it, it, life giving. Yes. It, right. it was so amazing that I finally was going to be protected from disappointing and hurting my family and my friends mm. anymore. Mm. I was like, I'm in prison <laughs> at, at that point in my mind, that's as low as it gets. Mm. It, it, but I, but I'm not going to be able to do something like as far as like run and hurt them and, Mm. and, and, um, disappear out of their lives again and leave them stuck with this. And so it was just sheer utter relief that I didn't have to fight that anymore. And then they, it was exhaustion. I slept like a baby that night, Mm. just, just crashed out. Um, but then the other part of it was I also had to deal with the fact that I was like, how am I going to go through? Cause those doors are about to open. Right. And when those doors open, I'm not in Essex anymore where it's 97, 98, 99% black mm-hmm. or African-American. It's a mix in Bear County. It's a mix of white. It's a mix of Hispanic and it's a mix of black. It's like almost, it wasn't a third, a third, but it was, it was a healthy separation. Mm. And I was in, um, I was in a high risk because I had aggravated robbery. Mm. I was in a high risk, uh, holding area, yeah. but I wasn't part of the high risk guys that were acting out. So I was, one level below the the the, mm-hmm. cr- the crazy pods. So yeah, so you weren't in the area where it's like guys are really still being violent in prison and like messing with people and doing stuff like that. Um, that was happening, but when that would happen, then they would take the guys out of our cells and, or, and, and our put area, them in that pod, you just and put it into that next tier. Yeah. Um. So ours was just below it. So, um. Yeah. So I was with guys that had you know like. I'm chopping it up with somebody and it's like, Oh, I'm in for murder. You know, it's like, yeah, I was on, I was on meth, you know, it's like mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And they tell me the story right? or, uh, aggravated assault or, you know, just a number of different things. Mm. Then you have my cellie who was in for, uh, DWI. Mm. So yeah, DWIs are treated like murderers in Texas mm. penal system, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Um, so I knew that those doors were going to open, even though I'm Hispanic, so I'm, I'm half white, half Hispanic, uh, 
I look white, so I'm going to be approached by the whites. And when I'm approached by the whites, they're going to say, hey, you know, who are mm. you? Who who are you? Who do right. you stand with? What are you about? Right. And um, look, uh, they'll make their pitch as to why I should be siding with them. Mm-hmm. And that they'll say, hey, you know, the blacks get a little crazy here. Or the Mexicans like to push people around. So you want And so... Uh, or they'll find out I'm half Mexican and they'll say, Hey, you know, it's, he's one of your people and then blah, blah. I knew that that sorting system was about to happen. Hmm. And I also had seen enough in my bond time that I knew that things could get crazy really quickly. And so as I sat there, I was like, all right, God, you and me have had, uh, a very interesting relationship <laughs> this entire duration. Mm. And I thought I knew you. And then obviously, uh, I didn't know you like I thought I did, or mm. I wasn't as committed as I once was. Mm. And I need to sort this out. And so I was just sitting there. I was like, I don't know if you can, you did your part. Like I shared with them. I said with Andrew and Andrew, I said, Andy and Andrew, I said, um, I made an agreement with God just, the whole prodigal son story, right? Mm. For me, when I walked up and 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 came into my father's house and said, hey, you know, in that whole storyline, mm-hmm. that was me. For me, that final part of the journey mm-hmm. was sitting there in prison. Mm. I did my part. I walked back. I humbled myself. I was humiliated. I did the humility and walked through town where everybody knew who I was type mm. of thing mm-hmm. in that whole storyline. And I came in. And so... In my mind, I'm like, I said, hey, God, you get me to the finish line. So this is the finish line, being in my cell, and I will willingly go along and turn myself in. Mm. And that, to me, was the full spectrum of the agreement Mm. between me and God. I was like, you don't have any more responsibilities anymore. You did your part, Mm. and I did my part. So now I don't expect you, you don't have to. You don't owe me anything at all. Mm. He never did. Um, and I was just kind of like, I felt like we had to re-up the contract. That's kind of how I felt like it mm. needed to be done. And so I was kind of thinking like getting ready to pitch my case as to <laughs> like, hey, you know. And that's when, you know, I told the story at church and I shared how in that moment right. it was like God uh, like ran to me and embraced me. Just like in that story of the prodigal son. Um where the father runs to the son before the son can even get out and say exactly what he had rehearsed in his head as being like, Hey, this is the reason I I hope you'll take me in. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, Hey, you know, you're, you're my son. You haven't lost favor, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm still going to celebrate you being back. And that's what I felt in that cell in that moment as I came to God. And I just said, I don't want to do this without you. I don't want to do this alone because I'm terribly afraid of, getting out in five, seven, 10 years mm-hmm. and wasting the next five to seven to 10 years. I've done nothing with who I am and with my time. This all has been for, it all would have been for nothing. Mm-hmm. And I said, the only way I know to get through this system and make something of this is if I have your favor, if I have you. Mm-hmm. So this is what's going on in my head as I'm like making those final steps of just saying, Hey God. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of felt him say, yeah. Yeah, that prodigal son story. There's there's a couple other I think like similarities or mirrors because even in you like saying, um, 
you know, God didn't owe me anything. Well, you hear a little bit of that in the prodigal's rehearsing of his story when he's like, maybe he'll take me as a hired hand. Yeah. Kind of like, hey, I'm not worth, or, you know, God doesn't owe me, but hopefully he'll just take me back. You know, I know you weren't saying that last part, but like, that's you know, what I felt though. That's what you heart. felt like. I'm not, you know, he doesn't owe me anything. I'm just sort of like, I'm coming back, sort of like just as a, as a hollowed out sort of person of what I used to be. And then, yeah, what, what does God do? Well, of course he like comes running and is ready to go and is like, yeah, I, I think you're my son. So like, you know, you're part of the family always will be. So then, um, yeah, so you're in TDC. You're staring at, like you said, at least five, maybe seven, maybe the whole 10. Just depends on how it goes. Um, I know you got bounced around to at least, what, three, four, five spots. So tell me, tell me maybe something like the first relationship, friendship Mm. that started, and this may not be where you were wanting to go, but I'm just thinking like, I mean, go, go where you want, but this is my question. Um, first guy in one of those first spots outside of Bear County, sure, sure. like you're out really, you know, in TDC, um, that you sensed God's like working in this guy. This is now your ministry, hmm. you know, like, oh, you want to use the next five to seven, 10 years. Like you actually want it to be productive, fruitful, Maybe you thought that was going to be all internal, like taking some classes, doing some like college stuff, whatever. But God's like, well, yes, but also Hmm. here, you know, don't think you're done as a Christ follower, that your personal beliefs won't become a public ministry, right? So like, tell me, tell me maybe like a first story, you don't have to mention any names if you, you know, if that's not cool, whatever. But like where you're like, oh, God wants me to like minister, Right, so I'm I'm curious to hear that. Yeah, so uh, for those of you that have any kind of like background in any of this, just so you know that when you're in this place, this vulnerable place, theology and doctrine go out the door. So you're not thinking like logically, like oh yeah, of course God will take me back because He mm-hmm. propitiation of sins and <laughs> right. the redemption process and all right. that. You're not thinking any of that. You're you're just in the very raw, childlike state. So. There was definitely a sense like, um, if you take me back, I'll be a hard hand. And I was in my head, I'm like, I'll just stay quietly to the side and I won't hurt anybody. Mm. And then if I get out of here, if you just let me live a quiet life, you know, I promise not to, to, Mm -hmm. to make a mess. And that was kind of like the most I expected for myself. I never expected to be useful. Mm -hmm. I never expected to be used. Mm -hmm. I didn't think, oh, I've been two years in Bible school. Let me tell you guys what... You know, let me let me expound and teach you guys. Like that, none of that like, ever hit my head. That was not your knee jerk of like, well, I'm in prison, so like Paul was in prison and he like wrote letters and he ministered to people. You, like you weren't thinking that that was going to happen. No, and yeah. and I had some people uh, that were like, oh, they do in a chapel. Are you teaching at the chapel? And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the last person that should be teaching. I'm the most broken, uh, wrecked person here. Right. Um, because it became clear early on this whole identity thing, mm-hmm. like you know, you you were just you're kind of saying, and this is the part I didn't I didn't uh, I, I should have pushed a little bit more on before we do this, but like maybe I can just summarize that, and then like we can talk about the the shift into ministry in prison. But like 
hey, are you going to be with the whites? Or are you going to be with the Hispanics? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, well, I'm going to be a Christ follower. I'm going to stand on the Word of God. I'm going to, I'm going to in, in, like engage the Spirit of God, and that's who I'm going to be in prison. And then, and so then the questions of, oh, well, you must be the Bible guy. So chapel's happening. That's why those assumptions were then being made. But do you want to comment well, even, on that at all? Yeah. Even for my friend, friends and family that were expecting me to do like to do that stuff. immediately. I never right. told anybody in prison right. I'd been to Bible college for two years. Mm. It, I, it, I think I was in my third year when I finally just, it just kind of came up. And they're yeah, like, right. well, why aren't you doing this? And that, uh, mm-hmm. um, so just as a quick rundown as to what happens. Uh, so you spend your first, like in Bear County, you're going to spend your first 30 days in County waiting for what they call a bluebird bus. And then when you get your bluebird, they're going to send you off to prison. So jail, prison, those two, two separate things. Um, County jail is like, uh, the guards are like, like jacked up on cocaine and Mountain Dew. Ready to jack somebody up. They're called certeen spider monkeys. And, is what I they mean, are. Yeah. yeah, it's what you see in the movies when you think of prison and they got the like riot gear. Hey, and if any of you men and women are watching this, listening to this, hey, we l- love and respect the work that you do. But yes, we just called you spider monkeys. So you know, <laughs> if you see our if you see our faces on the highway, or you know, if we somehow nice. end up in yeah, just you know, just understand we're joking. But yeah. seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, th- they were, they were legitimate badasses and they were just yeah. sitting waiting around for like, please act up. Just a pro Just, yeah. g- just give me a problem. And so right. I watched them just come in and just mess some people up that were mm. acting up. And, uh, and I saw the result of their work. Uh, so when I got to prison, so I did my 30 days there, I get on my bluebird. They sent us off. I don't know what to expect. You go through the whole strip down process, blah, blah. I start off at a place called uh, East Garza, no, West Garza. And that was the first place that they processed me. It's done in Edinburgh, right? Uh, no, this is in um, uh, Beeville. Beeville, that's yeah. Right. Uh, the Garza units are there. And so you, you, when you go through a process, like it's not like, uh, okay, go here, take your picture, then go there, wait in line. Mm. And, and, and 30 minutes, maybe an hour, you're. Now they're, they're putting in your cell. Mm. I mean, it was like a, maybe like a 10 to 12 hour thing till we actually just, mm. you're waiting for hours and hours on these hard benches. Just, you have to be silent, stay, blah, blah, blah. Um, waiting for the next spot to open mm. up. They're just taking their sweet time. They got no rush. There's no right. expedite. They don't need to expedite anything. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you get processed in Garza West. And so I got into, I got processed. I got into the main area. And um, they put you in your pod. It's like 50 people. Oh, that was the what, those pods are like maybe more like a hundred. I think it's a, they're bigger pods. So it's like a hundred people in the pod. And um, so you don't know how long you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. At Garza West, it's very so you go through uh, your first two years in prison in Texas. You go through a transit uh, prison system, meaning they're not going to put you in the main prison system because. They don't know where exactly to put you just yet. And then also there's a lot of people with like smaller crimes that they're not just saying, hey, we want to mix two-year people or three-year people in with guys with lifetime sentences. So transit gives them time to sort everything out. Mm. And also kind of watch and evaluate you, especially if you're new to the system or they're trying to figure you out. Mm. And so uh, Garza West is a transit spot, but it's usually just an intake place. They just bring you in and intake you. So mm. I intake to Garza West and I was there for about, I don't know, a month or something like that. And then all of a sudden they up you one night and say, Hey, Mathis chain, you know, just every night they'll call out blah, 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 bunk this, bunk that chain, blah, blah, bump chain. Mm-hmm. So they call my bunk chain, boom, boom, boom. 
And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to McConnell. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I've asked questions, but I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of uncertainty and I'm not nervous. I'm not freaked out. I was a little surprised when I got to prison because I was expecting 13 times 10, mm. you know, I was expecting like County times 10 mm-hmm. and actually prison was super chill. Hmm. Like super chill compared to what I was seeing in county, county jail, both yeah. inmates and uh, the guards. The guards were all d- dumpy, you know, and just kind of like, yeah, you know, walking around watching people. Yeah, yeah they, and and I mean, they didn't look like they could hurt a fly, hmm. you know. So I was like, what the heck is this place? I was, <laughs> and I didn't understand that. Uh, and also, when you get into prison, a lot more rules are established, even in a transit facility. Hmm. Uh, guys that have actually done time are like, hey, this is how we do things, you know, and. If you get out of line, we'll check you. But for the most part, everyone just kind of wants to get through the transit part. So I went from Garza West to Garza East. When I got to Garza East, I said, hey, this could be your permanent transit spot, most likely. Hmm. Garza East sucked. Um, Garza <laughs> West was worse. Hmm. Uh, Bear was worse than Garza West. And none of them were as bad as Essex. So hmm. every step is getting a little bit better, but that doesn't mean it's like great. Hmm. So you get to Garza East, go through that process. And then all of a sudden, one after I've been there 45 days, maybe... A little over that and all of a sudden they're like bunk whatever I'm chain saying, right and i was like dang it i was like okay then i was like i don't know where i'm going and that's when i ended up in edinburgh and lopez mm. and so when i got there um it was awesome <laughs> mm. they're at like in edinburgh and in the south part of texas they operate by their own rules mm. and it's a much more higher hispanic community and coming from san antonio and uh, uh, Mexican family, I was a lot more familiarity with that. Mm. So I felt very comfortable there, but I kind of like the Wild West approach. Mm-hmm. They're away from Huntsville, and they do things how they want to do it. That mm. could be for good, and that could be for bad. Yeah. But I kind of like that little bit of a looser system. Because Edinburgh's down there like... On the border. 10 miles from the border or something yeah. like that, yeah. And so uh, anyway, they ended up putting me in uh, Z-Pod, and I would come to find out that Z-Pod was the one that was really dealing with a lot of racial issues and they were dealing with a lot of tensions and most mm. of the fights that were happening on the unit. So Edinburgh is a much smaller unit than the mm-hmm. other ones. Like I think it had like a thousand people total mm. and like the guards has had like 2,500 gotcha. each. Um, so when I'm there in Z pod, uh, I'm just kind of processing through everything. And that's when I see like a lot of like race tensions and race wars, you mm-hmm. know, about to kick off. And, but I kind of found my groove. I found people I could talk to, but at the same time, I'm just learning how to do prison life, nothing mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So the part that you're talking about right there is I had been in Z-Pod, at, and this is my new transit. This is there. I'm there for two years now. I know and that's this where is you can really spot. like start making some friendships of like, yeah. okay, these people, I'm going to probably be around these because you've been moving a few yeah. times up to now. Yep. So now this is the part where it's like, okay, who are these guys? Yeah. What's going to happen with me and these guys? Yeah. Um, and, and I started making connections. Uh, here and there, um, the I was uh, doing secretary work for the maintenance department, which yeah. is a super cush job. Mm. And so a lot of the maintenance guys that I was working with kind of like took to me and befriended me. And so at this time, it's 2012. At the Garza units, I'd heard of this thing called a faith-based dorm. Mm. They were just starting it. And they, and they were actually recruiting people to come in. And everyone in the unit's like, don't go there. It's a catch-out dorm. It's a catch-out dorm. 
people find out, man, it's like they're going to know, you know. And then it's like, and then all that's going to happen while you're there is you're going to be telling on people. Hmm. Now that's what catch out means. Is that what uh, catch out is like you don't want to do time in the in the general population. So hmm. you're like, I, I want to go to a safer place because I feel endangered. Gotcha. Um, hmm. And you could catch out because maybe you're you know maybe you got like child molestation or or some type of sexual hmm. uh, thing going on, which they didn't understand at the time. Those types of people were not allowed in the faith based dorm, but. Uh, you could be trying to catch out for that. Um, again, everything was real new at the time. Right. Uh, you could be catching out because trying to get away from some of the gangs or because they're coming after you hmm. for something. Uh, or maybe you're just trying to avoid confrontation or whatever. Hmm. So it didn't have that great of a reputation initially. And then they were like, everybody there is fake and yada, yada, yada. And all they do is tell on each other. Hmm. So when you're in the system, everybody, everybody, everybody's breaking some rule while you're in the system because the rules are so stringent of keeping you at the most bare necessity that um, simple things like having uh, a, what we call the free world pen. So a pen they didn't sell in TDC was called con- was considered contraband. Hmm. If you got a little bit of extra food at Chow or somebody gave it and you brought it back um, and you couldn't show how you got that food or where it came from, that's contraband. Wow. Like, Every little thing could be contraband. So everybody at some point has some type of contraband mm. or is pushing the system just a little bit, not maliciously, just trying to get by. So when they said, hey, you know, they could rat on you or t- they, that's all they do is rat on each other in that place. That's the type of reputation it has because that's what they're expecting people that go there to do. Mm-hmm. You're like, your life could be hell being there. It has nothing to do with faith in God. Mm. So I didn't sign up. And I told my mom about it. I said, hey, they have this thing here. So I'm talking to my mom on the phone, writing letters and, and my, my brothers and stuff. But my mom's the one that I'm really kind of like sharing like information. Right. When I shared with her what the faith-based dorm was, she was like, you got to sign up for that. I was like, no way, mom. I said, you don't <laughs> understand. It, this is what it is. This is the reputation it has. Mm-hmm. So when I got to Garza, the guys in the maintenance department that I had befriended had just moved into the faith-based dorm. And I'm like, these are some pretty solid, tough guys that have mm-hmm. been in the system a while mm-hmm. and uh a handful of them were woods uh woods is like the white they don't like to be called a gang but they pretty much are the whites that look after each other um so they're not like the white knights or they're not like uh, uh aryan brotherhood but you know mm. they're their own thing and uh, one of them was actually a speaker for the woods and so when i was talking with him i was like why are you at that door man it doesn't have anything. he's all no man it's good man seriously hmm. you can't do time better than this he goes i've done a lot of time you can't do it better than this right here hmm. so i was like okay eventually i started getting a conflict in my dorm and my mom's like please put in for it and i was like i already put in for it she's like please put in for it one more time i was like all right i'll hmm. put in for it one more time I put in for the faith-based dorm i forget about it right before something goes down in my z pod i get the call hey you know math is you can move move chain i'm like chain they said yeah well Chain, but you're, it's a move point. slip. We're moving you to the faith-based dorm. Hmm. So the part, the I, that's a long question just to lead up. That's a long response to lead up just chronologically to that moment. Yeah, that's good. When I walk into the faith-based dorm, it was, there's, there's, there's a few times when you have moments in your life where you can tell you're walking into two different atmospheres, where you can walk out of, you're like, I would call this one dark and I would call this one light mm-hmm. or I would call this one very oppressive and this one very open and free or like mm. I couldn't breathe here and I could breathe there. Mm-hmm. However you want to describe it, I felt all of those when I walked into that pod and I was like, first off, guys were kind of like 
relaxed. They were laughing. They were joking. They were just having a good time and not, there was no tension. Mm. It was just a total change in atmosphere compared to what I had just kind of gotten used to for the last like 11 months. Mm -hmm. And so when I walked in, I was like, man, this place is different for sure. Mm. And, um, you know, I could share several stories about what it was like that first time, but people were just genuinely excited. Like, Hey man, you're new here. You know, Mike, Mm. let me introduce you to Dan. Let me introduce you to this guy, blah, blah. Just a level of kindness and like, yeah. Immediate, like non-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Mexicans, whites, blacks, like everybody was just like getting along in there. Hmm. Now, I never saw a, any Bible study whatsoever during my first 11 months in the different units and different places I had been moved to. Um, I just seen some guys reading their Bible by themselves, but that hmm. was it. Mm-hmm. And that was the crux of it. So I remember I put my stuff up. I had to go back to work, finish out. And then when I came back, uh, it was chow time. We came back from chow. And so one of the first guys that... I befriended um, that really was like an impact person. His name was Dan Covert. And Dan was just like this real excited, like um, good natured guy. Mm. And he came from um, uh, a pretty wealthy, uh, well to do background Mm. from Austin. Mm. And so, but he had had a lot of issues with like drugs and alcohol. And so he'd been in and out of the system. Um, So he's familiar with the system, but there was also just this. Uh, familiarity with like who he was and and he was a big cowboy fan Mm. Um, and he's like man I love God man I just God saved my life and da 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 later on he would tell me a story like when he said God has saved his life he had just become a Christian so this was um, September Mm. when I'm in there he had just become a Christian that end of May and just got baptized Mm. so his his mom died and his mom had been his biggest enabler Mm. the day that he got baptized Mm. And he had prayed to God. He said, hey, if this is really, I need you to like really make it happen. So he, the day he got baptized is the day his mom died. Wow. And, uh, and he's like, he, he go, he's told me, he's like, it broke my heart. But I knew that she was in heaven because she always believed in God. Mm. But she was also my biggest enabler. So I didn't have her anymore. And wow. I knew that God was speaking to me. He goes, but he said, look, I've done the Christian thing before. And da, 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 da. This is kind of, we talked real serious, <laughs> like real gauge. Mm. And, um, He's like, I've done the Christian thing before. He goes, it's different, man. He mm. goes, it's different. Mm. Something's changed, man. I'm telling you right now. Mm. I'm so excited. Love God. Love God. You know, and he is just so jacked up. And I just hadn't, I hadn't heard anybody in the system mm. with the freedom to talk about their talk faith. Like that, like right. This. right. So when I got back from Chow that first day at the faith-based dorm, and I saw Dan and um, I'm trying to remember the other guy's names. At the time, but Dan's the one that stood out. There's there about four of the guys, um, and Mike was there, the speaker for the woods. He was listening in mm. and sitting with them, and they were doing a Bible study, and they all had their Bibles out together. Oh. And so, um, during Z Pod, I remember I was doing my own study. I was reading on my own, and I was just been reading through, and I'd been reading through Hebrews, and I got to Hebrews chapter seven. It talks about Melchizedek, mm. and for some reason. I got stuck on Melchizedek. I was like, I'm not getting anything from this. Like, I, I was getting some from everything, and now I'm stuck in Melchizedek. And so for almost like three months, all I did was study Melchizedek and read about it and read everything I could on him. Mm. And in prison, all you got is your resources that you have. So I had uh, my Bible and my Bible, <laughs> mm. right? So anything in the Bible that, that had to do with Melchizedek, and I think I had a, a 
a study Bible. Mm. I read everything I could, and I was like, I don't know. I was like, I, I, I'm not really getting anything out of this. And around that time, I got moved. So all that leading up to that moment, as I'm walking up, and I see them, with, and I'm like, what the heck? They're having a Bible study? Like, I know it's a faith-based dorm, but mm. it was just so weird. I hadn't seen that in so long. And then Dan's like, Mathis, he goes, you read the Bible, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, bring your Bible over. You want to join us? I was like, yeah. Mm. So I go over, I get my mat, I roll it up, I sit down, I open up my Bible. I was like, cool. And again, you guys they know don't know anything about Melchizedek? <laughs> they don't, <laughs> They're I like, who? Some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they, so again, I've been in Bible school for two years. I've been on the mission field uh, for a little, a little bit of time. Um, I had led groups at Eastgate. Right. You and me had served together in Eastgate. Right. Um, it was natural for me to be like, all right, well, let me go ahead and take the lead on this and educate you guys. Right. Again, I'm not thinking that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I just want to listen. I'm so excited. You guys are just doing this. Mm. And I sit down and I'm like, so where are we at? And they go, oh, uh, we're at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. You know where that's at? And I'm like, or chapter seven. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I know where that's at. So I open it up. And I was and Medina, that was the other guy. His he was mm. kind of leading it, mm-hmm. kind of. And so Medina was there. Medina says, "Hey, uh, so we're uh, talking about this guy Melchizedek." I said, "Okay, cool." And they said, "We're kind of stuck. We don't really understand mm. what's going on." And you're like, "Really? Can you like do you, do you know what's going on? Can you share with us?" And I was like, at that moment, that's when that what you said. The reason I tell you everything like leading up a God moment of like I'm gonna use you and. I was like, okay. And I didn't feel like... Because you had been on that for two or three months at that point. Like, it just yeah. can't... Like, because you're just reading through. So if that reading plan had continued, you probably would have been well past Hebrews 7. <laughs> yeah. But there's... I mean, and I would right. have been like, yeah, it's kind of familiar. You know, I would have just kind of... But you had just kind of... You lingered on that. And, and I was it, like, God, why don't you give me anything? I'm stuck on this. And mm-hmm. it just... And because I was stuck, I didn't want to... I just felt like I just had to keep digging and digging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just well versed into that for that moment. But so it's 2012, right? Mm-hmm. It's towards the end of 2012, September. Um, I hadn't sat in a Bible study and I hadn't talked to anybody sincerely about God since Albania. Mm. So like six years. So 2006, when you, you yeah. and I went to Albania, yeah. that was the last time that I remember ever sitting down with anybody, contributing, being a part of, and engaging, like feeling my spirit engage in this context spiritually, like mm. opening up. Mm-hmm. So everything, like when you asked that question, I just thought of that moment right there, and I was like, mm. Faith-based yeah. dorm, here's these guys. Yeah. yeah. And then of all the chapters, of all the things that get stuck on, the one thing that I've been studying routinely for no reason whatsoever, and mm. I never really overstudied Melchizedek. So I said, yeah. I said, so I just started breaking it down, what I knew. And I just was like, duh, 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 duh. And I'm working through each and every one of the scriptures that I've known. And I'm in the zone. I'm not really, you know how you are when you're t- talking, teaching. Right, right. You're in the zone. You're not really kind of paying too much attention to your surroundings. Right. When I was done, the guys were like, okay, you got to leave this study. And I'm like, no, man, I just want to sit here. I was just, I just had been studying this. And they said, <laughs> right. no, dude, like right. we need, that was the best study we've ever had, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I just want to sit here and listen. You're like, but, can, can we not decide this on day one for yeah. me? Yeah, right. But they kind of were like, 
at, at that point they said, you can come in and listen, but you know, Medina's like, look, I know I do this group, but I want you to look, I'll take, I'll take the lead, but I want you to make sure you contribute and blah, blah. Cause mm. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of new to this whole thing too. Right. So that was for me that started, um, I was there in Lopez for two years. Uh, I was in the faith-based dorm for right around a year and a half. And during that year and a half, I, that group right there, we were together for maybe like six months. And then each one of them started paroling and rotating out. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and then a new, another group would come in. And so with, we had so much time in our hands. In the faith-based dorm, you had no jobs, really. Mm. For the most part, you just did your faith-based classes and stuff. Yeah. So all we did was study. And I said, hey, do you guys, look, do you want to just start from the beginning and we'll work our way through it? We got the time. And so that's all we did. We meet mm. once, maybe twice a day, three f- hours a day. Mm. And then they would do their readings, and we'd get it together and talk about it. And so we just worked through this. We worked through this, the, the whole Bible together. And then another group came in. I just started doing that with them also, and um, and that was my that was my life. That was my time. But it was during that time when I also just being able to do that with those guys was tapping into a part of my person that I had been mm. dormant for so long. Right. And then also because we're spending so much time in the scriptures, I'm now deep diving into my own personal like trauma of mm. how how did I go from where I was at to what happened? Like what Mm. I, the, these very sensitive topics that I didn't ever want to touch were all of a sudden on the table. And it was like, God was bringing them up through different classes and through different conversations. Mm -hmm. And then I would just sit there at night and process through it and just think through it. And then I started remembering like this happened and this happened and this is why this happened. It just started making sense to me. Mm. And I mean, I'm healing spiritually, I'm healing, I'm healing mentally, I'm healing psychologically, mm. I'm healing in every aspect and every phase of my life. Mm. And um, it was, and I'm doing this, I'm not doing it in a vacuum, I'm not doing it alone, I'm doing it with these these other men that are doing it too, I get to hear these stories. Mm. I mean, that, that two years was, I know this is probably one of the craziest things that somebody can say, but those two years, or that at least year and a half there, probably the best years, some of the best years of my entire life. Hmm. So the fact that I can actually look at, look at you in the eye mm-hmm. and tell you that prison in prison for a year and a half, at so, least was so good. Right. Yeah. Was some of the best years of my entire life mm-hmm. of, cause I was just encountering so much healing. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So anyway, that, that lead up to that. And then I, uh, my two years is up in transit. I got to go hit the real units now. And so that's when it's like, okay, baby, like transits, especially faith-based dorm, it's like uh, hmm. babysitting class is over. You know, mm-hmm. it's like cupcake hmm. time's over, we used to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got to go do some real hard time now. Hmm. So I didn't know if you had any questions before. No. I, okay. Yeah. So then you, you spend, what, four years, essentially three to four years outside of the faith-based yeah. dorm that you were in. You go to Edinburgh. That's the Lopez. Is that where the faith-based dorm yeah. was? Yeah. And yeah. so, and then, so then it's three to four years of like pretty tough time. Um, well, it, it, what happened after that point is you go to, uh, if they haven't processed you yet, you go to a processing center, which is the bird unit. 
And um, I happened to catch it during the holiday, so I got mm. stuck there for a little bit longer. Um, and maybe like almost two months I was stuck there. And I was there for Christmas. I was there for New Year's. And um, you're just kind of locked up the entire time. You can't go out. You can't do anything. You just wait. Mm. You're waiting for them to either you go stand before somebody and they're going to ask you some questions or they just say, uh, we're just going to process you here. Yeah. But I'm like, am I going to McConnell? Am I going to Darrington? Am I going up north to uh, this place or that place? Mm-hmm. Am I going to a rock and roll pod or am I going to Gladiator? Am I going to a kind of a chiller, older? Because mm. I'm in my late 30s at the time. So I'm like, maybe I can get to one of these older units where it's a little calmer. Mm. Uh, some of these other pods, the rock and roll pods are the youngsters that like to act out. Mm. And anybody that's kind of like giving them a, a hard time and this they'll just kind of put them in there. And sometimes people just end up in the rock and roll mm. facilities. That's what they, that's the terminology they were using. Right. But if you just wanted to go like bang hard and you wanted to go hard in the paint type of thing, then you can go to what they call gladiator units. And those are just kind of like little blood fests. Mm. And that's kind of like what McConnell was and uh, Conley and, and some of those places. I can't remember all the names of the other ones that, but I mean, those are some of like the bigger names. Darrington was more like, um, I don't know. It was a little more rock and rollish, hmm. uh, but I didn't know where I was going to end up. I didn't know what was going to happen. So I'm just, I'm like, trust God. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm fighting the anxiety of, right. But at the same time, I'm like, look, it's uh, the system is the system and I can't hide who I am. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like when the whites came and every place I would go to you, they don't know who you are initially Every dorm you go to, you're going to get approached say, hey, you know, who are who you worried are you? about? Yeah. The faith-based dorm is the only time where I had a break in that, and they just approach you as a, a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'll, you know, find out what you're about. So every time I was just saying, hey, I'm Solano, and then I'd be like, I'm a Christian. You know, this is what I do. I put, I always had my Bible with me nearby, mm-hmm. and I'd, you know, put my hand on my Bible and be like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is how I'm doing my time. All right. You want to do your time that way? That's cool. Just stay out of our business. We respect us. We'll respect you, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. mind the rules. And that's it. Hmm. They let you be. So I was kind of expecting that. And I was also expecting that to be a little tested when I got to one of these other units. Um, so you have this thing called, uh, so you have the S one, but the S one is, um, so they have this like identification system of kind of like where you're at as far as like how much they can trust you to do certain things Mm. or where they're going to classify you and put you. And so I, everybody pretty much starts at an S three and then you can, by the way you act can drop to an S four. And then that's when you get sent to these other units and you have less freedoms and Mm. you know, you're going to be in a, a little bit of a tighter, uh, facility, a pickle type of situation. Right. Or if, you qualify for, and I forget what all the qualifications were. I know you can't be a sex offender or have any type of sexual case. Um, and I don't think they were letting anybody with like any type of murder charge or certain type of aggravated go up to S2. Mm. But S2 is um, what you're, you're, you're uh, allowed to a lot more freedoms. Mm. It's as close as being locked up to getting to be free as possible because mm. you'll have interactions with people on the outside. You'll be outside the units. You'll mm. be doing jobs. You'll, you'll be living in uh, more open dormitories instead of cells. Mm-hmm. And um, even though that means less privacy, you have a way more freedoms mm. and it's just a way easier time of, yeah. of doing your time. And so everybody wants to hopefully get that 
but you have to do some time in the system before they let you get to that. Cause S2 they evaluate state. you and yeah. see how much trouble you're causing or not causing. Yeah. So, so then you, I couldn't believe it when they, so they brought me in after two months and they said, Hey, you know, we're processing you, blah, blah. They give you the paperwork. They don't explain the paperwork. They just give it to you. So I'm there and I'm looking at the paperwork. I'm like, it's Greek to me. I don't know what, but then it says like destination and it had, um, W2 on there. And I was like, what, what units W2? I don't know what W2 is. So I look over and I show him, I show one of the guys that was sitting next to me. I was like, do you know what, the, what unit this is? And he goes, dude, he goes, you lucky MFR. He goes, you're a, you're a S2. Hmm. And I'm like, trustee. That's what it is. Trustee. Oh, yeah, there you so go. he goes, you're a trustee. And I'm like, what? And I had written letters for other people to try to get approved to be trustee. So I was familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I just never expected it for myself. So when he said, hey, you're trustee, I was like, because that meant the more free, yes, more like like pod kind of life, but you have more freedoms. You're not yeah. in a cell. It was a right. gift. It was a right. gift from God. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons. Kind of, I ran with the whole idea of prison, Steve, because I readily tell people I did not do hard time. Hmm. I did time. I saw hard time. I was around people that did hard time, hmm. but because I got the S two status, I didn't have to do hard time. Mm-hmm. I I did. Uh, as as far as like if you got to do time in Texas, I did beautiful time because that was after your transit period. Yep. So it was like what four years and essentially as an S two is yeah. that right? Yeah, roughly four years or what, so. What would happen from that point on? Yeah, yeah. So so then it, from what I remember, because my wife and I would get letters from Steve, and we tried to make a few visits, come see you like face to face. Did that here and there. But most of the correspondence was we'd get online and we would go through the the website that they have set up and we would write letters and I guess they would print them off and like deliver them to to your you know bunk or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then Steve would sit there and he would write these like novels <laughs> like on a like legal pad paper or you know whatever. And so we'd get these we get these letters in the mail and I remember getting them and when one would show up it would be like I'd be like I think he even you know would say like. You know, Lauren, we got a we got a letter from Steve. You know, and we didn't have kids at the time. They came kind of towards the end of your time. So like our oldest was born in thirteen. So then as he got a little bit older, he'd be like three, four years old, and we'd be like, hey, you know, we got a, we got a letter from from Uncle Steve. You know, and 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 you know, Everett would be like, Steve, Steve. You know, <laughs> and so we'd sit there and read it, and then we'd get to some of the some of the commentary. It would be like, okay, Everett, go in the other room. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because uh, not everything's kid friendly. Dude. They were, yeah, they were this crazy, wonderful mix of like truth telling and like processing a little bit. Kind of here's where I'm at. Here's how my, you know, here's what I'm doing. Here's my mental status, whatever. But then there would also be, you know, some political commentary, you know, some like and some, you know, things like, man, you know. Uh, I'm reading this book and this is what I'm seeing and I got this commentary on this thing. This is what I'm learning. You know, it was really cool, you know, to kind of track the journey, but, but also, you know, and then sports, you know, like there's always, of course, Dallas Cowboys references and like how poorly they were doing. Cause they were always doing poorly. Um, just telling everything in these letters. <laughs> yeah. And so just, yeah, we would read them. We would laugh. We would cry. We, you know, it was just like this, uh, it's a great way. I should have brought our binder because we have a binder with all of them in yeah, there. Yeah, I remember Lauren saying she I should found have, that. I should, have, I should have dug through it last night and get some quotes out, maybe for another episode. But yeah. uh, I don't remember anything that I wrote. 
Like you, I remember, it, I would just write. It'd be cool for you to go through it and to look at it, and <laughs> and like for us to put them in chronological order, and for you to kind of just flip through and yeah. be like, oh my gosh, like what am I, you know? Yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, no, that's great. So then you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, uh, I think we're probably at like an hour or so, something like that. Um, yeah. So I remember it being like 2016. Mm-hmm. Into 2016, going okay, it's been five years. Like, I think Steve's, I mean, everything we know from your letters, you're like, I'm in, I'm in good standing. I'm not, there's no issues. Nobody's taking issue with me. I should be pretty clear sailing. Although with TDC, you never know. It can, you know, 12 hours just to get processed, right? When you first go in. So I remember just like into 2016 going into 2017 being like, and you were like, I don't know when I'm just going to be told like, Hey, tomorrow you're getting out or whatever. It's going to be like real quick like that, almost like being put on a chain and moving. Like we may not, I mean, like, like your mom would get a phone call basically when it was time. And I remember just each month kind of being like almost excruciating, which I know for you is, you know, a thousand times worse, but ended up being the end of 2017. So it was like a, it was essentially an an extra year. I mean, you got sentenced to 10, so it's like officially, you know, but like still thinking, Everybody on this side in the free world was going, okay, Steve should be back. We can't wait to see him. Man, just like ready to have him back, you know, whatever. And it took another year. So maybe just as like rounding out, which I know you also want to talk about kind of what you're doing now, but like maybe all together, like how was that last year? Just trying to get the heck out. And then like, what's the next thing in front of you right now? I mean, the last couple of years, I know you've been doing some different sort of, uh, career pursuits, driving, some different things, but you've got something new on the horizon now um, that's connected to that still. But like, so last year in prison and then, and then what's, what's on your radar right now? Like, what are you about to go do? Yeah. So uh, I'm an S2 and I am watching everybody kind of process out pretty quickly. Mm. And so um, the only ones that I'm seeing not process quickly is the guys that are getting um, what they call FI5s or FI6s. So FI5, FI6s, if you had any type of drug issues, you would get an uh, FI5. Um, if you had a DWI, you would get a FI6. The FI6s were taking forever to process out. Mm. I didn't have DWI issues, so I wasn't even thinking about that at all. Mm-hmm. The FI5s, I was like, I've never had a drug issue or anything like that. And my, my crime had nothing to do with the drugs at alcohol. So what I'm waiting for is an FI1 or FI2, I think are the, what they are, which means that an FI1 means once they get it, it could be a handful of days to a month and you're out. Hmm. FI2 could be just a little bit longer, but again, you, pretty quickly you're out. Mm-hmm. So I go to parole. I, I forget. I actually forget this whole process here. Um, but somewhere in that process... Um, I think I sit down, I answer some questions, and that was it. Um, and then I wait, we wait, we wait, we wait. And we're waiting a long time to get that letter to respond. And then I get the, and then my dad says, hey, they called us, and they said, um, yada, yada, yada. And what he said to me was like, it made me understand that I was getting FI2. Mm-hmm. And I was like, nice, I should be out of here Month so or two. Th- yeah. This was in March, I think, February, March, when I talked to him and mm. a- after we'd seen him. 
So I was expecting it to process out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And then I get the official letter and I look at it and I'm like, the heck? No. Wait a minute. And I look at it some more and I'm looking. I was like, maybe it's a five. No. It's a two mm. upside down. Mm. I'm like, son of a gun. That's a five. Mm. And I know I should have I know I should have been initially just grateful just to get the approval. Mm-hmm. But I was miserable because I was like, I'd heard what it was like for a guy getting an FI5. Mm. You're waiting. But the worst part is when you get off parole, mm-hmm. you're not off. Mm. You've got to go through this whole process here. Mm. And so I had been waiting for so long to just get out there and get to work and start. I had never been a healthy contributor of society. Mm. I had never worked to save money. I'd never been responsible. And during this time, as I'm healing and healing all this brokenness, I'm like, I want to put this stuff to use. Mm. I want to work. I want to make money. I want to save. I want. Yeah. I just want to do responsible things, like good things. Mm. And when I saw that, I was just like, I remember I was like fighting this urge to want to be angry. So something popped up in the questions that you answered with the, it's no. just, it just, it just popped up. I think up. what happened was the very first day when we went into intake, I was so green into the system that I'm answering everything as truthful as possible. Mm. And it got to this part saying, Do, have you ever uh, done drugs of any kind? Mm. Right. And I'm not like, even yeah. connected to your crime. No, just, not just, at all. just your personal history. So yeah. I asked the person that was there kind of answer, like kind of like making sure everyone's doing what they're doing. I said, is this got a time frame on it? Like, right. You know, we're going and they're back like, the they're like, no, just yeah. any, if you've ever done it ever in your life. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, well, who hasn't done drugs at some point in their life? <laughs> You're like, I want to be honest. A handful so. of people. Right. And so, I had shared with them that college, I had gone through a phase where I just kind of blacked out and just partied my way out. Mm. So I was like, even though that was a you know, healthy 10 plus years or something like that since that time, mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And then they said, have you ever been drunk or blacked out? I was like, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, no time frame. So then that kicks out when you're trying to process out of yep. prison. Yeah. So five years later, some random questionnaire. That's the only thing I can think of because... There's no drug issue, alcohol issue with anything to do with my crime. Mm. In fact, that's the whole weird thing about it is my crime was committed with, that was the one thing that guys in prison didn't understand. How could you do what you did? You weren't high at all. Without anything at all. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, So I was just stunned. I didn't know. I was like, I want to appeal, but I don't know how to appeal this. Mm. But finally I was like, well, okay. And so it took a little while. They processed me out, and I ended up at a place in um, Kyle, Texas, and it's a it's 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 a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, "Man, what the heck?" So you have to do six months there, and it's day camp for adults. Mm. It's it's babysitting for adults, ran by I don't even know how to call them. But the system is so petty and so ridiculous. Mm. It's just, it's, it was one of the most excruciating. It was the easiest time I did, period. AC, comfortable. But six but months, no it less. It was six months right. of just excruciating childness. Were there like From, presentations and like things they had you, you had to... sit in a circle and yeah. uh, you had to confess something or somebody 
would charge you with something and then everybody would have to tell you how much you were crappy and how much you affected them and all that type of stuff. Nice. Uh, I I bet that was great. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Guys that had been (laughs) uh, locked up for 30 or 40 years were given the the stage in front of every all all these 50 guys and and was let and they're like hey you can come tell your story mm. and these guys were just blow dude and it was just like a walk through <laughs> ghetto land <laughs> and i was like or meth land or something like that yeah. i just wanted to tell their story and they right. just dragged out and you had were, to, you had to just sit I there i just had to sit there in these classes and and be and they'd be like so what was it like when you were like, what were you addicted to? And I was like, life? I don't know. I was like, I wasn't Freedom. addicted to anything. Yeah, right. And they're like, why are you here? And I said, I was hoping you could tell me that. So just day in, day out, like, I don't know why I'm in these classes, but I'm here. It is what it is. I accept it. Yeah. What happened during that process? So I actually led the Bible study, the walk through the Bible, those first two years mm-hmm. at Lopez, uh, that first time at Lopez. Then I would do it one more time at W2, and then I would do it one more time at uh, East Ham, where I was S2 there with some of the guys that were there. And then, because I was there for six months with the guys, I'm like, hey, uh, you guys want to do a study? And they're mm-hmm. like, uh, sure. And I said, well, it's what we did last time. If you want, we could do it again. So here I go. Mm-hmm. For the fifth time, we're doing a walk through the Bible type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, And as I sat there, I was just like, if I'm here for any reason, uh, then I'm here for this reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm here for these guys. I'm here to talk to him. I'm here just to listen. I'm here to, uh, to, to, to humble myself into this process. And I was like, I just have to accept it for what it is. So mm-hmm. I had to, you know, kind of calm my expectations. Yeah. And, but that was, that was a pretty rough time of six months of just having to be patient through that. Mm-hmm. I finally got out. Um, November 17, November 27, 2017 mm-hmm. is the day that I walked out Yep, and that was, you've been preparing for this day for this whole time. So it wasn't too much of a, and every step I had been taking had been one step closer to freedom because for so you it was, it was super shock to the system. Just shy of six years though. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah. 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 So yeah. you had been preparing for it, you know, as all you were thinking about for the most part. I'm sure, but when it happens, you're probably kind of numb all over again a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, but again, since each step had been like a little bit of like more freedom, more freedom, more freedom, mm. it wasn't too much of a step off, but I was definitely like, man, this is, it, w- it was amazing, it was surreal, but what was hanging over my head the whole time was when you, so six months of classes is what you're given, mm. but then you're given another year and a half of classes mm. on the outside. Oh, and yeah. initially, That's right. when you're the first six months, you're going to classes three, four times. And I was, we were living in Spring Branch at the time, mm. and the classes were in San Antonio. So I was having to get somebody to drive me in three to four times, mm. twice a day sometimes. Mm. Uh, and then I would have to go do parole in Seguin, which is uh, about a 45 minute drive to get out there mm. and do some stuff out there. So I couldn't have a job. So I had been waiting this entire time to just work and I was ready to work my fingers to the bone. I was just, mm-hmm. I was really stoked about being able to do that and to have that, that was like a, a bucket of cold water on my face of saying like, slow down. You're out, but you, there's still this like yeah. lingering like structure that yeah. you've got to, you've got to keep up. 
Yep. Yeah. And and so I wasn't really able to get the type of freedom that I initially wanted. I didn't want to be a burden to anybody when I got out. Mm. Um, there was definitely a process of as much as I wanted to prepare myself and say, I'm not going to be, I'd heard about guys being like white knuckled whenever they'd see like police cars and stuff like that. I'd be mm. like, I don't want to be like that. But mm. the first time I was driving by myself and I saw a police car drive Freaking by out. out there in the hill country. and just, Oh man. I was like, cause you can't get pulled over for anything. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you can't have I mean, any you can, issues. You can get, you can get like, you can get like a, a you know, your brake lights out, speeding, like traffic Something things. Traffic, yeah. It's frowned on and, and parole, but it's just kind of like, you know, we need to know if you're what's going on. Right. Um, but it's still a strike on you. Mm. But just at any point you feel like your freedom can be taken away from you. It feels very, very fragile, mm. especially initially. And so yeah, I was the first time I drove by a police officer, I was very white knuckled. I was very kind of like, man. Um, I had a plan of wanting to get my CDL and to start driving. And then once I felt I got a little money put away, I would buy a truck, I would buy a trailer, and I would start hot-shotting on my own. Hmm. It was early on, like, and these are questions I, I should have been smart enough to ask. It was it was early on that I realized I can't travel while I'm on parole. Hmm. I can travel in the state, but if you're a CDL, hmm. if you... You know, and you want a hot shot and stuff. I'm, yeah. I didn't know anybody doing it that could explain to me, like, like the real money was kind of coming outside of the state. Hmm. But I heard the money was in the oil field. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll still go get my CDL. That'll right. be my baseline. Mm-hmm. So I went through with that plan. I got my CDL in um, May 2018 and uh, started using it. And uh, I got to a place where I could do my classes once a week. So I wasn't having to do so now you obsessive. Work and, yeah. I could work. Right. And I w- did construction. I told them what was going on. Construction will always work with you. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you're bringing something useful to the table and you do what you're supposed to do there for the most part and you're up front with them, they're going to work with you. Mm-hmm. So they, the the companies I was with, they worked with me. And I mean, I worked. I worked like, I mean, if you remember, I was I working remember. like... Uh, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Yeah, at one yeah. point it got up to... I remember I did... Uh, I did 70, 85, 90, and then a 79 hour work week. Just dut, 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 dut. Right. I would, Non-stop. I would stop. Yeah. And I loved it. And mm-hmm. it was just like, I needed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course you burn out when you push it that hard. Mm. I'd heard the money was in the oil field. So I'm like, okay, let me go to the oil field. And this entire time I'm still trying to find my leggings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to the park. I don't feel at home at the park. I don't feel at home with too many other people because I'm so used to being with openly broken people mm. that wear it on their sleeves. Mm-hmm. I had, that was what I was so, I was very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So when I was in the construction field, I'm around that all the time. Right. You know, and so I felt very much at home. Mm. But when I was around people that had their stuff together Just and didn't. had had their stuff together the whole time, mm. I was like, I felt very gun shy or like I had to explain myself. Mm -hmm. Um, that was very, that was, that was not an easy transition. Mm. Um, but because of our friendship and knowing you, I was like, I'm going to stick this out. Right. Yeah. You know, doing that, Mm -hmm. uh, even though it made me uncomfortable being in some of those circles. But, uh, yeah, when I heard that there was an opportunity to go to the oil field, I took that opportunity and 
I was out there. I was making good money, mm-hmm. and the doors were opening to make really, really good money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found that when I was out in West Texas, I was by myself all the time, and I'm driving, I'm doing it, I'm fun- everything's good. The plan's working. But the isolation is kind of jumping on you. Yeah, and I remember yeah. telling you, just being like, man, this is not... Mm-hmm. Something's not right. I used to be able to be by myself traveling and doing that all the time. Yeah. But I had got so used to community in prison. All those times of doing uh, things with these guys and, and really good, like decent guys that mm-hmm. were really trying to work on themselves and, and just being a part of that. Mm-hmm. And then being, and then I just was like, I was away from my family and away from my friends for six years. Mm-hmm. And here I am less than a year later, jumping out and isolating myself again. Mm. And it was just too much. It was, and so I came back and, um, I took a local job using my CDL, um, but, and had odd hours and it kept me from being able to do too much community, but it still let me stay local for a little while. You were close by. And so what I've done with my time since I've been out is I have used my CDL as my skill trade as my baseline. And I, but I've, that's not my dream. Right. And it's not my dream. I didn't know exactly. And I knew when I got out, I was like, I'm not sure what I need to do. I just know I need to stay productive Mm. and, um, and I need to learn. I need to relearn how to be Mm. an adult. I need to relearn how to be, I just wanted to be a healthy contributor to society really. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's like an indoctrination that was going on in my head during prison. Mm. Just don't, don't offend, comply, blah, blah, blah. Really like compartmentalize and key and box things up. So you can just move forward and then you come out and you got to start unpacking that stuff again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, there's definitely been some transition as far as like being able to adapt to being around, um, uh, people that I would say are normal, (laughs) that, uh, function normally Mm. and, and just being around that constantly and not feeling so out of place. Um, another thing that, I had a hard time talking to women. Hmm. Uh, so if I went on a date, it was fine. We're having a normal conversation. Hmm. You, you know, we're equally in this hmm. interested in having this type of friendship and relationship together. Yeah. But if I'm talking to somebody's wife, if I was talking to somebody else's spouse hmm. or just another woman, I was like, I'd, I had been conditioned in prison to not take that women were a danger to you because a woman if you got into somehow got in a relationship with her easily could, I watch guys get kicked out of the S2 program and have to go, you know, McConnell or go here mm. or there. Cause they got caught up with different women because gotcha. initially they'll turn you in. Cause if they get found out, they'll turn you in to save mm. their own skin type of thing. Mm. Uh, or I just had seen that women could take your interests of being just a nice person or friendly or whatever mm-hmm. the wrong way accuse you of something or want something. Hmm. So my approach was I looked at women as being a danger to me Hmm. during my time. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of stayed away from them and just kind of like watched Hmm. them. So it took a little while, actually, that's a weird thing right there, but it took a little while to, to To relearn how to just engage and, and not be worried that you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Or so, like something's going to be taken from you because yeah. you've opened something up to. A and woman. again, if it's a date, like we're mutually both there, everything was fine. Mm. But it, when it was just having a conversation with just an, uh, uh, another female or another woman, or especially if she 
was in a relationship with somebody, I was like, I don't want her to take anything I'm saying. Hmm. So I would make just enough eye contact so it wouldn't be awkward, and then I would just find something else to look at. And hmm. Weird psychological things like that were, yeah. were some of the things that I noticed, uh, were, were some of the issues that I dealt with. And there, there was a few others that kind of popped up, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember uh, that I was going to bring up. But the, the main thing that I can say is that um, when... When you get out, you want to, um, finding a skill trade or finding something mm. is, is just something to stabilize you Right, is one of the best advice that I could find, like mm. I can give to people that are coming out. Mm. Just find a way to, to find something that you can do to be able to, cause discipline becomes such a strong part of your, like a schedule. Is that a big part yeah. of it too? Like having some kind of like set, yeah. is that, is that yeah. part of it? So having like having something to do with work, uh, as helping develop a schedule that you can work around and, mm. and, and not having so my old lifestyle used to be very fluid. I had no schedule and da, 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 mm. and I would just flow that way. Mm-hmm. When I got out, I was like, Oh, I could just go back to doing that. Mm. And I realized I was like, man, I'm really miserable. Not I healthy. miss my schedule. Yeah. It's not healthy. Yeah. You know? Right. And I, I missed, I, I found beauty in the discipline. Mm. I will say this and and as we're wrapping it up, I'll, I'll say this what for, to understand like what happened to me during that time. Um, I went into the system borderline hating humanity. Uh, I absolutely hated the government. Um, and I was very skeptical. I was very, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, conspiracy theorist nut. Hmm. And, I just had a real heavy victim mindset going in of blaming others and just being real skeptical of it. But main thing was I just didn't like people. I got to a place where I didn't like people. Hmm. One of the craziest things about prison is that when my, my process through the whole system and, and the healing thing, process that I went through and what God did with me was that when I came out, I actually genuinely loved people. Wow. Like I actually, like I was excited to just be around crowds of people like i remember the first time i was in austin i was like this is awesome hmm. there's crowds and there's no riot yeah. <laughs> i just it was it was just the goodwill of just like it restored perspective and understanding that most people you come across and come in contact with are just average good decent hmm. you know well-meaning people mm-hmm. um Every now and then, and even this includes the system, it was very rare for me to actually come across somebody that was outright evil. Hmm. And if I think about it, I hear all this stuff going on in the news, like, oh, this person's doing that, and this group's doing this, and it gets you all worked up. Mm-hmm. And you think, how many of those people did I actually come across this day? Hmm. No. Yeah. How many did I come across this week? When's the last time I came across somebody that was that? Hmm. And, and And you realize that a lot of this stuff gets you worked up because... And a couple million, 350 million people are going to find some crazies. Mm. And if all we do is focus on the crazies and we start thinking that's what humanity is, then we'll start thinking that's what our neighbor's like. It's a pretty dark view of uh, humanity yeah. at that point, yeah. And But if you just take a step back and just being like, man, I have, you know, it's like, yeah, I didn't get along with that person. They're not. Right. But I learned I don't have to like everybody and not everybody has to like me. Right. You know, I just have to, but I, as a believer in Christ, I need to learn to love everyone, which means that I will look past the things that are their, what I consider shortcomings or that, uh, 
I don't vibe with hmm. and or the fact that they don't vibe with me or they don't like me, I'll look past that and I'll still want their uh, well-being. Hmm. You know, I'll still want good for them. Yeah, it sounds like one of the deeper revelations for you is like the appreciation for people based on how you describe prison as a bunch of broken people. Well, I would say everybody's broken, just not all of that brokenness leads to crime, yeah. which puts you know people in prison, it, but it does lead to other things. Yeah. So maybe what I'm hearing you say, and this might be me you know, jumping to a conclusion, but um, away. a deeper appreciation just, oh, yeah. just for people, because you're like, yeah, I've, I've seen people in prison and they're struggling with this or that, or they've committed this or done that. And then you come out into the free world and you're looking around and you're going, man, humanity is just humanity. These people, most of these people won't ever go to prison, but I know sort of the depths of pain in humanity. Mm-hmm. So whenever I engage with someone, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to engage at that level to say, man, I don't know your story. I'm assuming there's pain and brokenness and I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm excited to be around you. I, you know, I'm grateful to be able to have an interaction with you because for six years, you know, my interactions were limited to this and that and the other. Uh, so it just sounds like a deeper appreciation. I wouldn't say like that you realized you took freedom for granted. I would say you just came out with a deeper realization of like appreciating human beings. I so, love the way you put that. That's actually the perfect, that that's, those are the words I was looking for. Mm. Uh, just the words appreciation and deeper. Yeah, that mm. totally sums it up. And it was for people. Obviously, it's for 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 family. The way my family and the way you guys mm. and my close friends stuck by me, mm. I had to, ex- for me to move forward in prison, I had to accept the fact that you guys could walk away mm. and be like, hey, we did our part. We got to move on with our life. Mm. And I had to accept that and be at peace with that. And make sure that my foundation was not on something that could be taken away. So Mm. that's where I leaned so heavily into my faith and into Christ. Because I was like, there were times where I was stripped down to nothing but my underwear and thrown into another cell. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a Bible. All I had was just me. And that was it, Mm. my person. And so I would tap into my faith to ground me. It's the only thing thing that you knew couldn't be taken. Yeah. Yeah. Or that would never leave. Or, yeah, that would ever fail or or leave me or whatever or hurt. And so, um, but, so because I was able to let that go, my expectations for, I need a letter every week. Mm. I need this, I Mm. need this contact. I need you to visit me. Mm. Initially, when you're doing your time, you really do lean kind of heavily into that. You're kind of like, man, it's so good when I get a letter. It's Mm. so good when I, when I, when I get a visit, like Mm. it it was, but the more and more I was able to do time Mm -hmm. and establish myself into the process and then develop my own community and my own personal understanding. I was moving away from needing that too. But the best thing was because I wasn't demanding it from anyone, mm-hmm. it made me appreciate so much more. Every single time I got a letter from you guys, mm. every time somebody came to visit, mm. it was just like uh, it was just bonus on top of bonus for mm. me. Like a rejuvenating. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. I, and, and, and so the, uh, the be able to, to take that and be like, I knew I appreciated my friends and family to the depth that I did. I was very yeah. well that I was not amazed, but I kind of was like childlike wonder to watch how hmm. appreciative I was 
traffic didn't phase me. Hmm. It does now. Hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Work didn't phase me at all. Hmm. I loved it. I freaking threw myself into it full mm. force every single time. Mm. And I, I still really do enjoy it. I do. I love being able to be actively a part of doing well, something productive, productive yeah. and moving towards something mm-hmm. and having a goal, uh, having a disciplined structure. I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Uh, appreciating the beauty of just humanity and society and not seeing it as this cancerous sore. Mm. It's a little harder these days with the way things are kind of, I, one of the things I need to do is pull away a little bit from all the news cycles and everything going on. Mm. I'm aware of what's going on now. Right. Uh, I got pris- I got newspapers in prison. I was always aware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. But now it's just an everyday bombardment, and I feel like I need to pull back from that a little bit. Sure. Um, but with this new perspective, I so I'm coming up on the end of my parole. My end of parole will happen sometime between December and October of this yeah, year. Yeah. Um, and when that happens, coming into 2020, I was like, what am I going to do? It's been 10 years. How do you celebrate something like that? Mm. And I was like, I need to take a trip. I need to take a trip to just celebrate mm. life mm-hmm. and just celebrate mm-hmm. just just appreciation. Yeah. I, and, and so initially it was just, let me take a trip, and then how long would that trip be? Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of kept morphing and morphing, and then all of a sudden uh, when I stood in front of the ocean for the first time in a, in a while. Mm. I was like, it just, everything I had suppressed as far as like, I had, I had suppressed the idea that I could ever travel again, that I could mm. ever, you know, I had suppressed the idea that I could ever be used by God again. Mm. I had suppressed the idea that I could ever go into missions or I could ever do any of this. I was like, Oh, you know, I burned those bridges. I can't ever mm. cross that. And just when I stood there, I just felt like God saying, everything's open to you mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Everything good. Yeah. You know, he reformed, he reformatted the way that I look at rejection. Mm. So now like when something doesn't work my way, I say, thank you. Cause I'm like, I don't know what it was that was going on there, but you just protected me. Mm. So now when I look back on, Hey, why did I have to do that extra time? And why did I have that oppressive year and a half there? I was like, I don't know what it was that mm. you were exactly keeping me from. Mm-hmm. I can tell you it was work and mm. being super profitable and mm. stuff like that but you were protecting me. Mm. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And so now I, I I don't know, like, anyway, I, I, it's, it's reformat, reformatting that. I was like, what can I do with this time? Mm. That's, that's available to me now. And it doesn't matter what's denied to me or whatever. I just want to focus on the things that are available to me. Mm. And so what morphed is, uh, I wanted to do a trip around the world to just celebrate. Yeah. You know, I was like, I just want to be able to travel yeah. openly. And I want to just see through this new perspective that I've been given, this new eyes, this new light, this mm. new appreciation, mm. and just kind of celebrate that. Of course, in 2020, COVID and all that happened, I was like, right. what the heck? Right. So again, I mentioned the rejection thing because I could have been like, man, like disappointed, like this is being withheld from me. Mm. I'm just realizing that I've just got to, again, Take new, that perspective back. New perspective, yeah. And understand that um, maybe appreciate the freedoms we've had a lot more mm. um, as they get reduced further and further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just maybe just appreciate when you do find it and the pockets that are there. Mm-hmm. And as humanity's gotten uglier, appreciate the places where you see the beauty still there. Mm. Uh, but I, my new plan right now, and I still am going to travel around the world mm. Cause I feel like this is where my true passion is, is where my, tr- yeah. this is where it, it flows naturally for me to be able to travel yep. and then to just 
listen to other people and share with them and hear their stories and then mm. want to, whatever I have to offer, offer whatever I have mm. and just be a part of their lives. I think something as far as my future uh, uh, purpose career is going to develop out of that. Yeah, This podcast, the YouTube channels, all that type of stuff mm-hmm. is going to develop out of that process right there. That's going to be unpacked as I do that. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and so because I think I need to maybe let the world sort itself out a little bit more. Mm. Vaccine time or not vaccine time or <laughs> right. vaccine passport, no vaccine or no, whatever. Right. Um, I have thought about wanting to do uh, the PCT, so the Pacific mm. Coast Trail. Yep. And I don't want to commit to it too much because it's so daunting, mm. but I want to at least, I feel like in April next year, mm. I'm working to save up so I can be able to do that. Do that, yeah. And and not just do that and use that as my stepping off to being able to travel. Hmm. I think that for me physically, it would be really good to challenge myself like that. Yeah. And to get back to a rediscipline pattern. Also pull away from society and, hmm. and the craziness. Just get, uh, get quiet. Get some get, get quiet. Some, yeah. Some rest and whatnot. And uh, like and, like mental rest. Yeah. And, and what I shared with you yesterday uh, when I was at your house about like going into this community is where God is not a very, uh, Jesus Christ, let's be more specific, hmm. is not a very accepted uh, topic hmm. or because of all the religious and political baggage that comes with it. Hmm. And yet that's the community that I'm going to be wading right into. Hmm. And so I... I don't know. Something in this whole process here is like, mm. for some reason, my experience is everything is leading me to be built perfectly for that place, that community. Mm. Um, we're going to share a lot of similarities on some views and topics and stuff like that because mm-hmm. I'm mm. pretty mm. out there on some of my views and on, on yeah. some of these things. And so I'll, I'll fit pretty naturally in that. But also just for them to understand... There's a reason why I have no shame in my identity in Jesus Christ. Mm. And there's a reason why I have no uh, 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 shame in the way that I'm approaching life mm. is because, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mm. feel like this may be the wrong terminology, but I feel like I've earned that right mm. through the, the journey that I've been on mm. to be able to to hold for it and say, look, mm. You may, this may make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. This may bother you, right? Mm. Because of the political baggage, religious thing that you Mm. associate with this, right? With with Jesus, with faith, with all that, with spirituality and everything. But in my darkest moments, when I was alone, Mm. this is what was with me. Mm -hmm. This is what kept me grounded. This is what kept me sober. This is what kept me sane. I will not be ashamed of this. I will not pull back from this. Mm. But I'm also not going to throw it in your face. Uh, because the the self righteousness has just been kicked out of me. Right. I think uh, that's a, I think that's a humble confidence is what that sounds like to me. I hope so. That's that's you know like a like a earning the right. Sure. I think that's you know that's a way to describe it, especially just with with your journey through prison and the conversations and the patient sort of firmament of what's been building in you. But I, I from what you just said, I'm like, well, that's just that's a that's a that's a humble confidence in your faith in Jesus Christ. Like that's that's not arrogant. That's just a that's a humble confidence is how I would like that's what I'm hearing you say. Good. So anyway. Well, I, I can't so. wait to see what happens with all that. So Yeah. And and you know there there's some things that I'm looking at as far as like 
uh, and I've always talked to you about creating um, residual income. Right. Um, so there's some things that I've seen through YouTube that I've seen through TikTok, and I'm yeah. like, I think I can, I think that kind of falls in line with the lifestyle I want to lead, mm. um, whether it's Airbnb and this or Toroing that vehicle or mm-hmm. uh, uh, affiliate marketing or, you know, creating some pathways to be in it, being able to do that. Or maybe it's just working, saving up money, mm-hmm. working hard, saving up money, and then just traveling. There's a uh, lot of people that do that. Yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll work for six months, travel for six months, yeah. which you know. So, yeah. And I really think that in that process, um, I because I've been through the depression, I've been through the suicide. Um, I like to give. Pe- I would like to talk to people uh, that are going through that, and actually using travel hmm. and using um, working outside of yourself, whether that's missions or uh, ministry or it's uh, NGO work or something like that, mm. to get all the focus off yourself and how bad your life is. Yep, it's to maybe output a little bit mm. um, and just kind of bring some other perspectives to some other people that are out there that are like. Uh, like one thing I noticed, like when I was in prison, was people that were coming from a poverty situation, or mm. um, we'll just call it the ghetto, or we're just calling it the trailer park, or stuff like that. Mm. There's things that I would tell them that I'd done, like when they would hear about me traveling, and they'd be like, "How much money did it take?" and "How do you do that?" Mm. And I would be like, "Oh yeah." And as I'm conversating with them, I can just see their mind opening up, like maybe, mm. like maybe that I could that do something could be like possible. that. Yeah. So if I have an opportunity to kind of engage more with them and just being like, "Hey," Life is not as closed in and hopeless as like there's possibilities. Yeah, I can yeah. even for some of you, I can even walk with you down that road. To, mm. So I see all those as possible uh, places to go that I'm going in the future with that. But cool, that's great, man. So that pretty much sums up. Um, that pretty much. Oh, I'll just bring it back over here. That pretty much sums up uh, the journey from that first day that I was locked up to my time in prison, and then what's happened after that, and um, and. I hope that that has kind of, for whatever reason, been entertaining for you, but also been a little bit enlightening. Um, if you've done time before, maybe you can share and um, be able to relate with some of those experiences and, and, and feelings and emotions and whatnot. I'm sure everyone had their own journey. Some people are like, man, my prison journey wasn't anything like that. It sucked. Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, well, right, right. I didn't uh, see any hope in it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so everybody's had... Uh, you know, different ways of processing this thing. Maybe you know somebody that's locked up and this will give you a chance to be like, man, you know, everything is not dark, doom and gloom because they've uh, found themselves in this type of situation. Um, I w- hope to be able to speak against that and be like, no, there is hope. Yeah, there definitely is hope. Specifically with Jesus Christ, I can promise you there's hope hmm. if you're willing to actually commit to that and yeah. um, commit to the person and and, and commit your, your, uh, your trust and your faith into him and move in that direction. Um, but there's, there's actually hope out there. So I'll just give Chris a, a final word of, before we wrap this up, do you have anything else to add? Man, I would just say that, um, I mean, of course I want to track with your journey. I mean, I know we'll be, we'll be friends for life. I mean, depending on where you may be traveling at some point. Um, but I would just tell anybody listening, you know, like Steve said, if you heard something today that's sort of sparked something, I think you want to track this journey. Um, you know, it's always kind of strange to promote yourself. So like, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Like you need to like, and subscribe, you know, to Steve's channel. You need to track with this, um, share it, send it to other people that you maybe know family members are just, you know, uh, you know, few iterations removed from you that you're like, Hey, I know so-and-so's friend or brother or sister, or whoever has been in prison. They, they like, they need to hear this. 
um, share it. Uh, as two Christ followers, you know, of course, there's there's a higher purpose that that we believe this is all for. And what I love about Steve and I have for a long time is that he wants to use his story, even even the hard parts, um, to affect somebody else to, to encourage someone else. So, um, yeah, like subscribe, share and uh, track this journey. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see what God's going to do. And I think, you know, the mix of how you're wired, your experience and your faith, all three of those things, I think there is something really unique that can kind of start to come out now as far as like, your ability to travel, not being under probation anymore, you know, that all that that's coming in the next six to nine months. Like, um, I'm just excited, man. I think it's going to be great. And, uh, I'm going to be on one of those trips with you. I know that. Oh yeah, man. As far as like, as far as going overseas somewhere. So anyway, it's been great to just track the story a little bit today. Thanks for making the time. Yeah. It's, uh, of course, uh, Chris is the father of two awesome boys and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's the lesser half for sure. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's way easy for me to make the time. It's, it's, I'm finding it's much harder to ask others to just drop everything and then make the time. And this was like a last minute podcast that I wanted to do before I head out in the road. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'll be driving in East Texas. I'll be out there for, uh, three months, actually driving with a buddy, mm. uh, in his company. And mm. hopefully I'll be bringing him on, cool. um, uh, and, and driving one of his trucks for harvest season. Uh, that I met at the Kyle unit. So mm. one of those extra times, like, why am wow. I here? Wow. Well, now I'm going to be driving and working with uh, a good friend of mine, James, mm. uh, out there. So mm. that's going to be really cool. That's going to be really exciting. And I'll be uh, podcasting from the road out there and keeping you guys abreast about uh, what's going on. And just as different things pop up, we'll be tackling uh, different situations and, and uh, uh, I don't know what else you call it. <laughs> that yeah. come up conversations, you know, starters, yeah. just things yeah. that are it's interesting. Be exciting. So I appreciate Chris. Thank yeah. you for joining. Of course, thank you uh, Park and Impact Gill for providing us this awesome facility. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, stay sane. Be positive. Peace. See you guys. All right, guys. That'll about wrap it up for this third episode of the Prison Steve Podcast. I want to say again, thank you to Chris Nickel for just taking the time and uh, just putting the energy and the effort into just meeting up with me. Uh, to ask a dad with two kids in the middle of the day on a Monday to make some time for you to do this, it's a big deal. For me, I can kind of move anything around to make it happen. Uh, being single with no uh, kids, you still have those freedoms and luxuries to do that. So uh, I know it took a, I, I knew it took a big sacrifice on his part, and I just really appreciate uh, him being able to do that. And then also just the insight that he brought. I mean, he really, like some of the things that he was sharing with me about like the judge's uh, decision and his expectations and like, um, you know, uh, some of the perspective of what it was like to communicate with somebody like me, uh, a friend of his being on the inside. That was, it was all very, very fascinating, very interesting for me. So I hope you guys found it engaging. Um, Please remember that I did cover some really heavy topics, uh, at least in the previous podcast. And I touched a little bit on in this one. And depression, suicide, being stuck, feeling hopeless, these are real issues that a lot of us can get, can find ourselves in unexpectedly. I never, ever thought that I would qualify as somebody who would be depressed or suicidal. And yet I did at one point in my life find myself in that place. So 
if you're looking for someone to talk to, since I don't have like a 1-800 number or specifically somebody I, I, I guess I haven't looked for that because I'm not trying to pawn anybody off just yet. I would rather, if you want someone to talk to, you can definitely reach out to me and maybe we can talk on the phone, email, message, whatever works for you. Um, but just as you know that there's an outlet here of somebody who's been through it that wants to engage with you on these topics and that really nothing's too taboo or too off topic that we can be like, we can't cover that. We can't dive into that. Uh, part of the thing about going to prison is that um, you've pretty much hit one of the lower points or the, the lowest point that you can in your life and that people understand you're like, man, it's, I don't really have to hold too much back from you because you've been at that super low point. So it, I don't mind it because it frees me up to be able to have very open, candid, honest conversations with people, which is what I prefer. So if you want someone to reach out to you, anybody to talk to about it, if you got any other questions, if you got comments, go ahead, throw them out there. If you want to send me an email, go ahead and do that too. Uh, please check out the YouTube channel. It's the uh, Prison Steve podcast uh, on YouTube. And again, all the show links and all the stuff will be uh, available in the descriptions below. If it's not immediately there, it's because I'm still working on it, and it just takes a little bit longer for the YouTube to edit that and then get it, uh, get it out there. Uh, but that will be forthcoming, and that's pretty much it. I just want you guys to know I appreciate you guys taking the time, again, a significant amount of time, to listen to this, and that pretty much does it. Love you guys. Stay sane. Be positive. Peace. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this podcast on whatever platform you're choosing. You can find the Prison Steve Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher now, as well as the Red Circle Podcast. If you want to throw your support for the show, the three best ways are to subscribe, leave a review, especially if it's five star, and to share with anyone you think would be interested. Those three things will help me build some organic traction, which is really the best kind. Any comments or tips that you have for me, feel free to share them via the email or the Facebook link that I will be leaving in the description. For all of your support and listening to this show, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to the next one. Please remember, stay sane, be positive. Peace.